All right, good morning, everyone. I uh, hope you guys all had a great weekend. And uh, as always, so blessed and thankful to be able to worship with you and share God's word. Uh, if you're new and visiting, uh, my name is Sam. I'm part of the pastoral staff. And as Pastor Tom mentioned, I want to double down in encouraging you. If you've been checking out the church, visiting, or looking for a church, or if you just have any questions about the church, please come to the welcoming lunch. I really think it is the best and most intentional next step to get to know our church a little bit better. Uh, most of our staff will be there. Some of the leaders of our church will be there. And it's not a scary formal thing. It's really just to, in a smaller setting, grab a meal. I think it's always helpful if you're new or visiting to know who else is new or visiting and kind of checking out the church. And uh, again, free food. So please sign up so we can know how to prepare accordingly. And uh, again, that will be next Sunday and look forward to getting to meet some of you or getting to know some of you better uh, in that way. Now, if you're just joining us, uh, we are on our second to last message in a series we've been doing through the book of Nehemiah. And uh, just to remind us why we launched this series uh, and why it's been a personal challenge and blessing for me uh, is that Nehemiah is all about renewal, rebuilding, revival uh, of God's people. And I think everybody knows uh, it's been a, a season of coming out of, a, I guess the best way to put it is like spiritual sluggishness for a lot of Christians. Again, the normal uh, rhythms and habits that we we're used to when it comes to our relationship with God, relationship with other Christians, it was just disrupted for so long. And even though we've been regathered for uh, over a month or two now, uh, I think it'd be foolish to think that we're over the pandemic blues. Obviously, it's still going on in a lot of ways, but consider we still didn't gather for well over a year. And so it takes time. It takes time to get back into the swing of things. And so that being said, uh, our story today, I think it's perfect to pick up. Uh, if you weren't joining us in the previous weeks, let me give you a context of where we are in the narrative of Nehemiah. Uh, two weeks ago in chapter 8, uh, kind of we saw that God, he begins this process of wanting to bring spiritual renewal and revival to his people. And in chapter 8, we saw this happen because he kind of uh, instilled a renewed sense of hunger for the word of God. And we learned, hey... Any revival, any renewal, spiritually speaking, is always through God's word. That is how he moves. That is how he speaks. And then as a result of that, the people respond in chapter 9 with what is common after God's word speaks powerfully is they have a huge time of confession and repentance. And I thought Pastor Tom did a good job of explaining what that looks like. Now today in chapter 10, we're going to see, well, what happens after that? What is the follow-up to that? And so if you have your Bibles, turn to Nehemiah chapter 9, actually. We're going to read the last verse of chapter 9, verse 38, because I think it leads into the rest of chapter 10. So we'll read Nehemiah 9, verse 38, and then we'll skip through the long list of names, and then we'll skip to chapter 10, verse 28, and read to the end of the chapter. So if you have your Bibles, turn with there. Uh, if not, it should be on the screen behind me. And again, the context is that they've been blessed by the preaching of God's word. They've been broken and moved through repentance. And now this is kind of what happens after in response to that. Nehemiah 9.38, it's the reading of God's word. Because of all of this, we make a firm covenant in writing. On the sealed document are the names of our princes, our Levites, and our priests. And then for 27 verses, it lists every single name of everyone who stamped and signed and sealed the name on this Document and covenant and go to verse 28 of chapter 10. The rest of the people, the priests, the Levites, the gatekeepers, the singers, the temple servants, and all who have separated themselves from the peoples of the lands of, to the law of God, their wives, their sons, their daughters, all who have knowledge and understanding, join with their brothers, their nobles, and enter into a curse and an oath to walk in God's law that was given by Moses, the servant of God, and to observe and do all the commandments of the Lord our Lord and his rules and his statutes. 
We will not give our daughters to the peoples of the land or take their daughters for our sons. And if the peoples of the land bring in goods or any grain on the Sabbath day to sell, we will not buy from them on the Sabbath or on a holy day. And we'll forego the crops of the seventh year and the exaction of every debt. Verse 32. We also take on ourselves the obligation to give yearly a third part of a shekel for the service of the house of our God. For the showbread, the regular grain offering, the regular burnt offering, the Sabbaths, the new moon, the appointed feast, the holy things and sin offerings to make atonement for Israel and for all the work of the house of our God. We the priests, the Levites and the people have likewise cast lots for the wood offering to bring it into the house of our God according to our father's houses at times appointed year by year to burn on the altar of the Lord our God as it is written in the law. We obligate ourselves to bring the first fruits of our ground and the first fruits of all fruit of every tree year by year to the house of our Lord. Also to bring to the house of our God, to the priests who minister in the house of our God, the firstborn of our sons and of our cattle, as it is written in the law, and the firstborn of our herds and of our flocks, and to bring the first of our dough and our contributions, the fruit of every tree, the wine and the oil to the priests, to the chambers of the house of our God, and to bring to the Levites the tithes from our ground. For it is the Levites who collect tithes in all our towns where we labor. Verse 38. And the priest, the son of Aaron, shall be with the Levites when the Levites receive the tithes. And the Levites shall bring up the tithe of the tithes to the house of our God, to the chamber of the storehouse. For the people of Israel and the sons of Levi shall bring the contribution of grain, wine, and oil to the chambers where the vessels of the sanctuary are, as well as the priests who minister and the gatekeepers and the singers. And remember this last phrase that encapsulates it all. We will not neglect the house of our God. Amen. It's the re reading of God's word. So before serving at this church, uh, I served a good amount of time at my previous church as a youth pastor. And youth pastor, you kind of have to be a jack of all trades. Uh, there's kind of skills you just have to learn if you want to be successful in youth ministry. One of these skills is you need to know how to build a successful beach bonfire. Because for some reason, every youth ministry has a bonfire one to two times a year. I don't know when that happened. I don't know why that happened. It's just kind of this thing. And uh, I remember the first time I had a bonfire, I actually did not know. I wasn't part of Boy Scouts. I didn't know how to build a successful bonfire. And so you had this kind of like small Korean youth group with like 12 youth kids. And they were so frustrated at me as their pastor because I was just like throwing in lighter fluid, throwing in like paper towels. And it was just like this, you know, like really poorly put fire. We couldn't even make s'mores because there wasn't enough fire. And then we had our Caucasian brothers and sisters over there who are probably like from Huntington Beach. It was literally like the flame of the Lord. And they're just like, you know, pastor, right? I kind of had like a fobs in my ministry. So they're like, oh, look at that in Korean. I was like so embarrassed. And so I took it upon myself. I'm going to learn how to make a successful bonfire. And it's really simple if you think about it. There's kind of three ingredients to building a bonfire. You need an initial spark, whether it's through a match and paper towel or a lighter and then you need kind of like an initial boost to kind of fuel that flame, something like lighter fluid, which turns that spark into something more substantial for a moment. Enough because the last and most important part is the third element, you need good wood. The wood is ultimately what's going to catch that fire and sustain it so it's not just this momentary hyped flame that dissipates, but it's something lasting. And using that imagery, I think those three elements perfectly captures what's been going on since chapter 8. In chapter 8, God brings the initial spark of revival in the way that only he can when Ezra opens the word of God and preaches. And that is the spark that wakes up the people. 
And then in chapter 9, the Holy Spirit pours lighter fluid onto the conviction that God has brought. And it brings them into this highly emotional, uh, very serious, solemn, passionate repentance and confession before God. Spiritual lighter fluid. And those are all good things that maybe if you've been a Christian you're familiar with. But if you ask anyone who's been on a church retreat or a missions trip or any sort of intense period of spiritual activity... They will tell you the hardest part about spiritual renewal is not feeling convicted. It's not feeling emotional. It is always how do you sustain that spirit after that experience? How do you maintain that after that mountaintop experience? That's why a lot of Christians, when you repeat that cycle over and over and over again, you just become disillusioned. Because you're going to think, ah, it doesn't last. So maybe what initially started as a God is moving, now you're just like, it's just, it's, it's a facade. And you kind of scoff at like the younger youth students who come back from the mountain and say, I'm going to change my life. You're like, you just see. It doesn't work that way. So the question we want to ask is then, if a, a powerful proclamation of God's word is the spark of revival, and the initial conviction and emotion that follows is the lighter fluid, what's the wood? What is the wood that so many of us, it, it seems to elude us in keeping this spiritual flame of revival burning? And again, wood is not fancy. It doesn't necessarily make the fire more impressive. All it does is it makes it last. And what you're going to see from the text is there's three things Israel does and that we also need to do today. If you kind of want to do what you can to sustain spiritual passion. And the imagery I'll use, it's like throwing wood logs in the fire. What are three wood logs that you just have to put in if you want it to last meaningfully? And here's the three. Number one. You'll see that Israel and we also today, you need to commit to God seriously. Secondly, you need to apply his word specifically. And third and last, you'll see you need to build his house sacrificially. Three S's, okay. So commit to God seriously, apply his word specifically and build his house sacrificially. So first, commit to God seriously. So one of the interesting things I came across as I was studying, I love origins, is the history of the handshake. Right? I don't know if you guys, I sound so nerdy here, but obviously a handshake is a very common thing we do all the time. When you meet someone, you shake their hand. But did you actually know there's a, a long, rich history about where the handshake came from? And it kind of centers around this common phrase you know, which is not only is shaking hands a greeting, but it is an agreement, right? Because when, you, when you're serious about something or you want to make a deal, what do you say? You say, let's shake on it. Why? Because it's meaning, hey, I'm, 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 I want to show you that I'm agreeing to something. And if you didn't know, if you look at a lot of ancient diagrams and drawings in the ancient world, you'll see a lot of uh, major leaders of empires, they're shaking hands. Because in the ancient world, shaking hands, it was symbolic and it was an act between two people who are serious about an agreement that they're about to make. And to show that they were serious, it was actually common for each party, they would take a blade and they would cut their hand. And with blood flowing from each party, they would shake hands to show symbolically we are blood serious about this oath and agreement. And that we are now one in our seriousness about this agreement as if to say we are bound by blood. And we're growing up as young foolish kids, me and my friends, we would test our friendship. And we'd say, we're friends, but are we brothers? Are we blood brothers? And what we do, we take our little pocket knife and we're like... Uh, we're not because we're too scared, right? But it's just the idea we knew, wow, like this is taking it to the next level. It means we're very serious about it. Another phrase you hear when someone wants to make something serious, like if you borrow money from them or if you're, you're making a certain agreement, what will they say? They'll say, put it in writing. Write a contract. 
And this is probably more relatable in the Western world because obviously I don't think we do blood handshakes, right? You don't go to purchase a house and the, the seller's like, well, let's blood handshake. That just doesn't happen in the Western world, but we get the concept of putting it in writing. What is this all saying? It's saying that as people, we get this concept that words are not enough. It's not weighty enough. It's not sufficient enough to show that you're serious because when you're serious about something, you need to kind of prove it by either what? Sealing it with blood or putting it down in writing and signing it. Or maybe in more modern day terms, doing something like put money where your mouth is. In the case of Israel, they had spent all of chapter 8 and 9 hearing about God's faithfulness to them as a nation despite their constant turning away. And after being broken and their sin and confessing, something clicks. Imagine like the last night of the retreat, they repented, they're believing in the gospel, and they're saying, we want to seriously recommit ourselves to God. Now, I think it is important to note, this is not because they feel the need to earn God's favor or to work their way back into being right with God. I think a lot of modern day Christians, particularly the Asian American church, here's a pattern that I see often where Christians, what they'll do is they'll spend the whole weekend in sin, go out and do things that they know they shouldn't be doing as Christians, whether uh, just in relationship or, or straight up just going out and getting drunk. And you come on a Sunday and you kind of hear God's word and on a whim you kind of shallowly say, God, I'll make things right. That's not what's happening with Israel because when you do that, you're doing that because what? You just feel bad about yourself. You just feel guilty. You don't want to cover your guilt. That's not what's going on with Israel. For Israel, their motivation is out of a response of being reminded of the grace of God. The grace of God toward them as a nation through the years. Uh, it would be like if you and I have an agreement we're going to go out to eat every week, and every week we will split the bill. And every week we go out, you forget your wallet for years. And one day suddenly you realize I haven't been paying at all. <laughs> Sam has literally been covering me for years and years and years, and it clicks to you out of gratitude and the grace that I've been showing you, you say, I kind of want to do something about this. Now that is what's happening for Israel on a much more profound level. It is out of the fullness of their heart that they want to respond. Not out of guilt and duty, which is so easy to fall into. But it is out of gratitude and grace. The Christian response to anything when it comes to obeying God is always out of gratitude and grace. Not guilt and duty. That's why in Nehemiah 9.38, how does this all start? It says, because of all of this. That's the gospel formula. You never do anything until there is a reason that God has already initiated. So you read Romans, you read the gospels, you read Nehemiah, it's all the same. In light of, because of all of this that God has already done, we make a firm covenant in writing. And on the sealed document are the names of our princes, our Levites, and our priests. And to put it simply, the first fruit of revive for Israel is what? A serious recommitment to God and a renewal of the covenant to be faithful to him. Now, what exactly were they committing to and what were they so serious about? Look at verse 28 to 29. It says, the rest of the people and all who have separated themselves from the peoples of the land. So at the very least, it's a recommitment to understanding as God's people we're called to be set apart. We can't just intermingle and mix with the world. And then it goes on to say, and to their wives, the sons, daughters, all who have knowledge join and enter into a curse and an oath to walk in God's law that was given by Moses, the servant of God, and to observe and do all the commandments of the Lord and his rules and his statutes. The simplest way to put it, 
they are recommitting themselves to a life of one, holiness, and two, obedience to God. Holiness in the sense that they understood as a people, they were called to be set apart from their ungodly, worldly neighbors. And obedience in the sense that the fundamental definition of what it means to be God's people is we seek to obey God. To obey all of his commands. And again, this was not an emotional high or a passing sentiment. This was a, a serious, word-inspired, spirit-filled commitment they were publicly making in the way that we do like our members covenant, for example. We publicly covenant out loud before one another and before God. That what were they covenanting to? We're going to pursue holiness and obedience as a people and as a nation. Now, how do you know this was serious? Obviously, we don't use covenant, that language or that imagery in today's world. Covenant by definition means you're serious because the literal translation to make a covenant is actually better translate to cut a covenant. Because covenants in the ancient world always involved sacrifice. To make a covenant, man, we're going to kill an animal, blood will be spilled, and it incurs a cost. So you don't just make covenants. For example, that's why marriage is a covenant. You don't just go around covenanting to anybody out there, you're serious about it and it reflects. Now, if I can take all of that and apply it to our context today, a little mental thought. Do you realize, generally speaking, you generally care most for the things that cost you something? Do you realize that? For example, one of the most expensive purchases I ever made was when I saved up to purchase that thing on my wife's left hand, her wedding ring. Uh, I was a poor youth pastor. <laughs> I did not make a lot of money. And for months and months and months, I saved up, saved up, saved up. And I incurred this great cost to purchase this for her. Why? Because I wanted to show her she means a lot to me. She is precious to me. And the cost reflected that. My nine-month-year-old son, Ezra, is expensive. <laughs> he cost me a lot. And I could care less about the, the financial stuff. He costs me convenience. He costs me sleep. He costs me free time, but that cost reflects how much I love and care for him. And these costs show that I'm serious about my family. I'm serious about my wife, serious about my son. In other words, if, the, if there was no cost to these relationships, it would be very hard to make a case that you truly care. So the question you have to ask yourself is this. If you're a Christian, does your faith and relationship with God cost you anything? Like how serious are you about your commitment to God? And how does that reflect in the sacrifice and cost involved in following him? Case in point, one of the most relevant, humbling realities for the global church today, if you have the eyes to see, just look at the Afghan church. Christian networks are screaming how costly their faith is. For them, the cost is life and death. They could be dead tomorrow. And yet what? In the face of martyrdom, they are saying this cost just... It gives me an opportunity to prove just how much Jesus means to me. And in light of that, what the great chasm is for us is as the SoCal Orange County Christian, isn't it such a weird dissonance that most of us, what? We live comfortable, convenient lives. And this is not to say you don't face struggles or anything like that. But when it comes to your faith, I'd be curious how many of us in our faith could be described as having a costly faith. Might be a little bold to say, but I think I've proven the point. A faith that costs nothing is worth nothing. Because in a sense, what that shows is you don't 
see your faith and your relationship with God as worthy of your sacrifice or as paying a cost. That's why the famous thing in King David, when King David was following the Lord, it drove him nuts that he would potentially do it at no cost to himself. So you know what he did? He incurred a cost. He created a cost to say, how can I say I love God but it comes at no cost to me? I'll create a cost. And what is that basic cost that's highlighted in our text? It's pretty general, but it is clear. It is the cost of following God. To obey his word and follow him over the comforts and the customs of this world. That was the first and most fundamental log that Israel placed in their spiritual renewal fire. Which is we're going to commit to obey all that God has commanded. That's also so generic. Like if the takeaway today was, therefore Christian, go and obey God. You'd be like, that's so arbitrary, which leads to the second more important thing, which I think is actually more important stoking the flame of revival, which is to, to apply his word specifically. If you ask me, Sam, what is your call as a husband to your wife, Angela? I will tell you, simple, to love her with all my heart. And in one sense, 100% true, amen to that. In another sense, that answer is somewhat incomplete and not satisfactory because every husband's call is to love their wife with all their heart. So there's nothing weighty about that answer if it remains on that level. So the follow-up question you should ask is, so what does it look like for you to love your wife right now? How does your love for Angela look this week, last week, last month? And something I realize I've been married, even though the call to love Angela is this constant unchanging truth, it can look very different depending on the season of life that we're in, based on her ever-changing areas of need, or more specifically, areas that maybe I'm struggling with that I need to grow in. And in a similar way, if somebody asked you, do you love God? I think most of our church would immediately answer, yes, of course I love God. I think what you would have a much harder time answering is the follow-up. So what does your love for God specifically look like these days? What does it actually look like? And what we learn from Israel's example is that while obviously we need to understand the general call to love and obey God, yes. Please catch this phrase, spiritual renewal, it doesn't happen in the realm of the generic. It doesn't. Nothing meaningful happens in the realm of the generic. If your repentance to God is a generic, uh, forgive me for I have sinned. Th that's not meaningful. That is not powerful. No repentance in scripture is that generic. It happens, spiritual renewal happens when you take the time and the effort to journey into the realm of the specific. Because that's when you're forced to really deal with your sins and what's going on and how you're actually doing with God. And in Israel's case in chapter 10, there was three specific areas that in that specific context, they felt convicted to address and commit to I can't go into too much detail, but I will give you an overview of what those areas were for them. The first area for them was this area of intermarriage. Look at verse 30. It says, we will not give our daughters to the people of the land or take their daughters for our sons. Now, a lot can be said here, but the basic idea is not that God had a problem with interracial marriage. God is not racist. It was that back then, marriage outside of the covenant community essentially implied you're bringing in idol worship. You're bringing in false gods. You're bringing in pagan culture into the what's supposed to be a set-apart nation, and they had been mixing that all along during this time. And so they're rededicating and recommitting themselves to, we will be a set-apart nation. The second area they felt convicted to address, which might be more relatable to us, 
was in the realm of their business dealings. Look at verse 31. And if the peoples of the land bring in goods or any grain on the Sabbath to sell, we will not buy from them on the Sabbath or on a holy day. What's going on here? Under Old Testament law, it was clear as day. God said, I worked six days, created the world. I rested on the seventh. You as my people, follow that pattern. Now, there's so many reasons why he called us to do this, but it's evident that they had fallen into disregarding that. And here's why. Uh, so I like Chick-fil-A. And even as a Christian, as commendable as I think it is that they close on Sundays, sometimes I drive by on a Sunday because, I mean, if you're a Chick-fil-A lover, you know this. You always forget that they're closed on Sundays. It's the most frustrating thing. And sometimes out of my bitterness, I'll drive by and I'll say, they're losing so much money. Do they realize how many Christians after church are like, would be down to eat Chick-fil-A? They're losing so much money. And I'm just thinking so worldly, right? But think about it. Sundays are a prime business day. So for the Christians back then, they're thinking all the trades people, all the business people, the hottest day to trade and make money is on the Lord's Day. So what they had done is they had neglected what maybe they saw as not as important of a law to follow. Why? Because they weren't thinking in terms of God and obeying his pattern of life. They were thinking, how do I turn a prophet? And so they recommit themselves to reorient their worldview. If God calls us to rest and take a Sabbath, he must have a good reason. We will obey. And the third area, which the text actually spends the most time on, so I'm going to spend point three on, is in this realm of what the text calls building and supporting the house of our God, which back then would have been the temple. And it's summarized, like I said, in the second part of verse 39, we will not neglect the house of our God. Now, a little bit of review why that's important. But for the longest time, the whole narrative of Ezra and Nehemiah has been the temple has been destroyed. And recently, through the journeys back from exile, through Zerubbabel, and then through Ezra and through Nehemiah, the temple had been rebuilt. And why was the temple such a big deal? The temple represented the presence of God to these people. It was the meeting place between God and his people. It was the only place where the people could encounter God through the institution of the temple system and the animal sacrifices. And what these people knew is the temple is important, but the temple is not going to run itself. There's so much things that need to happen for the temple to function that it literally required the entire community to sacrifice, to sacrifice, to volunteer, pour into it for it to be sustained and to run. And so in the case of Israel... They committed to God seriously, not just in a general, I want to just obey you, God, manner. But in a very specific, contextual, what is God calling us to do now? What sins do we need to address now? Now, to make it more palatable, I think the three areas they were dealing with, it's actually very relatable today. Let me put it in more understandable terms. The first area that they were basically dealing with is the realm of love and romance. Their view of romantic relationships and love. And all these are massive topics. The second area they had to wrestle with is their view on time and money. And the third area was their view of sacrificing for the sake of God's house, a.k.a. in modern day church, if I can put it that way. And for some of us, maybe like Israel, what you need to really specifically address is an absolute neglect of God's clear call to institute a pattern of Sabbath in your life. You know, it is not on the top of the hit list of sins that people think about when you say, you know what your sin is? You're not resting. In the same way that it is a discipline to work, I would argue for the modern day Christian, it is much more of a discipline to not work, to rest. 
God did not need to rest. But as your creator, he knows you need to rest. And what you're seeing is you're seeing a growing number of perpetually burnt out, anxious, restless, potentially bitter people. Because why? They are not heeding the call to take a Sabbath and rest in the sovereignty of God who says the world's going to spin without you working all the time. I can take care of you and your family better than you can if just, just take a day off and rest. Take Sabbath. You know how a symptom of that? You literally think you're in control of your whole life. You think if I don't show up for one day out of the week, life's going to crumble. Do you really think you are God? Like has the pandemic not shown you? You literally have no control over your life. It is this illusion that you have control. But in a moment, all that can be shattered. And you know what that one time a week Sabbath tells you? I'm not sovereign. I need to rest in a God who is. For others of us, it actually might involve the realm of romance or a sexual relationship. It's a massive topic that I could do a whole sermon on, but surely because of the fact that Scripture spends so much time talking about lust and sexual morality, I want to at least mention, I think for a lot of us, it's an uncomfortable topic, but that actually more often than not is the massive roadblock and barrier to your intimacy with God. You might look for all the other reasons why you feel cold and you feel distant from God, but I'm sorry to say if you... Leave that area untouched and you are struggling and the spirit of God is convicting you. You are just, you need to be careful there. It's like saying you want to get close to God and you're trying to stoke the fire by throwing in ice cubes. It's just an oxymoron for a Christian to say they are serious about their relationship with God, but they don't care to obey his word. It's tough to hear, but it's the truth. Or others of us, it's just a long-standing apathy towards God's church. And I kind of have to do a little deconstruction here because church is like such a baggage term for a lot of us. especially you grew up in the church. But fundamentally, remember, the church is the meeting place between God and his people, me and you included. And so if you, in your faith, begin to separate your relationship with God and your understanding and relationship to his church, you are putting both at an arm's distance inevitably because of their spiritual link together. And whatever the case might be, I think the humble ask for you today is, as the psalmist says, can you ask the spirit to search your heart, get you out of the realm of the generic and ask what are specific areas, God, that I need to really take the time to reflect on and address. Yes, of course, I generally want to follow you and obey you. But practically, what does that look like now specifically? It's a scary place to go to, but it's a place we must journey to. Which leads to the third and final thing Israel commits to, which is what? To build this house sacrificially. Now, I have to make this point, and I will, I will tell you, I, I, I struggled with it because it's a very boring point in a sense. I think our church, we're just so like, and then you need to serve and build the church. That's just kind of like, ugh, it's like the most disgusting vegetables for our season, right? But the covenant, more than two-thirds of the covenant is about building the house of the Lord. So in this thing they write, most of the content has to do with this. And back then the house of the Lord again was the temple. Now let me try to spin it in a way why you might understand why it's significant and why we think it's so boring. There's a big difference between Western and Eastern culture. Most of us are Westerners. Western people, when you think about revival and renewal, subconsciously, intrinsically, it carries an individualized connotation and flavor to it, does it not? So when we think of revival and renewal, 
We imagine an individual and personal revival that happens between us and God. So when we've been speaking about revival, when we've been speaking about renewal, guarantee the majority of you in the audience, you're thinking of me and God renewal. God put fire in my heart. It's all me and you, me and you. So if I could put it simply, that's a very self-centered way to think about revival. Like for the modern day American, for example, if I gave you an iPad and a pencil and I was like, draw your picture of renewal. I think what you would draw is a very beautiful secluded Airbnb in the forests of Japan. And you're private and all alone. There's like a creek in the background. And you're just there to personally decompress. You do like yoga. And that's like renewal. I'm personally renewed. No one else is there. Eastern culture is very different. And I'm not saying God is Eastern. But Israel was. And so much of the text was written to the ancient Near East. Israel's understanding identity of revival and renewal was primarily communal. It was corporate. And they all knew the central focus of what's going to keep their spiritual revival burning was not just this personal relationship, but what? It was the temple because that was where they corporately gathered to experience God together. So to them, revival meant not I need to thrive personally with God. It was our community needs to thrive spiritually with God. So we need to pour into the temple. Now I can't get into all the details here because the covenant is quite lengthy. But let me just break down what they decide to do. In verse 32 it says, we take on ourselves an obligation to give a third part of the shekel. First what they're saying is we're going to volunteer to provide money, grain, animals, whatever is needed for the temple offerings. And the reason they're doing that is because the, the sacrifices was a regular reminder to them of you need a savior. There's blood that's going to be spilled as a cost of your sin. So it kept them gospel thinking. Not only that, verse 35 to 37 says they're going to bring the first fruits of everything. I know growing up uh, in my family, my parents always said, if you get a new job, you give your first paycheck to, to the church. They never told me why. So I have no reason why I do that or why we did that. But that's just something we did. But this is where it came from. Now what that meant is back then what they would do is as a symbol of recognizing that God is, has ownership over their lives, that he has a right over their lives, they would frequently and always give the first fruits of all that they did and all that belonged to them to God. And the third thing they did, and this is where the tithe comes from, they promised to give 10% of their income in verse 38, 39, their wealth to the temple to support the personnel, the needs of the temple. And all of this is to say, basically they're saying, we are going to sacrificially position our community so that we are the ones that will pour into, support, and sustain the house of worship. That's what's going on here. Now a couple of things I want to make it a point to highlight. God did not command them to do these things. Look at the language. It says, we obligate ourselves to do this. In other words, what are they saying? They're saying, we want to create a spiritual and meaningful cost in our lives. And why are they doing this? It goes back to point number one. When you're serious about something, you put your money where your mouth is. They are building into their life and rhythm a meaningful cost and pattern of their life to remind themselves commitment to God is important. Worship is important. Let me give an example that's relevant in my life right now. So I'm at the age now where it's a very strange transition that happens where you no longer, like your parents aren't really taking care of you anymore. You're kind of transitioning to now you're taking care of your parents. It's a very surreal transition. One that you never thought you'd really hit. 
because they're always your parents, but it's life. It happens. And maybe some of the older congregational members can relate with me. And so one of my life goals, however long the Lord would allow my parents to live, is I want to have a clean conscience that I put in whatever effort I can to make sure they transition well into eternity, right? So one of those things is my parents have never seen my son Ezra. They're in Korea. And we can't go to Korea because of COVID, so Lord willing, they can see him soon, but they, they just never seen him. Uh, and that's just really sad for me. And so it's very important to me that I want to do what I can to help my parents have a relationship with Ezra and to let them know I'm thinking about them. Now, that doesn't just happen. If I said that and you look at, so what are you doing to, to make that happen? So I was like, I don't know. I, I just wait for my dad to call me. That's not meaningful. That's not weighty. So you know what I try to do? I try to build a cost into my schedule. I try to say, hey, once every like two weeks or so, and it is a cost because they're in Korea. Korea time is confusing. If you look at my Google, I have searched a billion times, what time is it in Korea right now? Like you would think I would just figure it out. I just can't. I've Googled that so many times, right? And I confess, sometimes I call my dad like 6 a.m. I feel so bad, right? His hair is like all disheveled. I was like, I'm sorry. I try my best. But I incur that cost into my life that I want to video chat my parents so that they can build a relationship with Ezra. And that cost is reflective of this is important to me. For Israel, they concluded the best avenue for them to invest in spiritual renewal wasn't just for them. It was incurring a cost so that the corporate community could thrive spiritually, a.k.a. back then it was the temple. Now that sounds very jarring for a lot of individualized Westerners. So you're saying, Sam, the cost we should incur is to pour into the church. How is that going to bring about renewal and revival? Well, sometimes it's really tough to deal with what we're so used to and accustomed to growing up in the church. If you haven't picked it up by now, though, God is actually very different than what you might imagine. He's a very, very communal God. Rarely do you see scripture use language like, hey, God, he wants to build up an individual. Or God, his purpose is to renew and revive a single person. Or God's salvation was about you. The language of scripture is overwhelmingly corporate. God is seeking to revive a people. God renews a people. Jesus came to die for the church. So to put it simply, what this means, there's simply no way around spiritual renewal apart from a serious commitment investment into God's church. And here's the nuance I would give. When I say God's church, I'm not talking about the church, the institution. I actually think a lot of our church people are good at serving the institution of the church. That's not what's going on here. God's church is the people. A lot of us, we serve the institution well. We run around, we use our hands, we use our feet, we set up canopies, we do our thing. But you're not seeking to build the people. You're not seeking to pour in and invest into the building of the people. I would say there's something off priority-wise if you are a, a, a faithful volunteer, you do setup, you do education, you serve all these things. But you have no meaningful growing connection and building up, investing in the people of God, which is the church of God, over the past couple of years. Because that is where renewal and revival happens. So the spiritual logs are serious commitment to God, specific application of his word, and a sacrificial dedication to building up the church, a.k.a. the body and the people. Now to close, can I flip the script using this same thing? So seriousness, right? We have to be serious. Now, have you realized, though, often we reciprocate seriousness based on how serious something or someone is about us. 
So for example, uh, I know somebody where they've dated around, but for the first time, the person that they're dating really, really likes them. And it is an absolute shock to this person. And the seriousness that that person is showing them makes this person want to respond back in seriousness. It's like, wow, this person actually likes me. Makes me want to respond. In the same way, when someone wants to meet up with me, if they just message really quick, hey, Pastor Sam, can you meet up? And I'm like, oh, sure. And I don't really respond. They don't follow. I'm like, they're not serious. But if they message over and over and over again, it, it inclines me to want to respond and reciprocate. Do you know how serious God is about you? Back then and even today, we agreed, words aren't that weighty. Seriousness is proven when you incur a cost. Whether through writing, through a sign, a seal, or through blood. Well, the theme of the Old Testament is that God is constantly shouting at his people saying, I care about you. I'm serious about you. And he even showed up time to time. He would do miracles. He would deliver them. He threw manna from heaven. He would manifest in miracles again. But for us today, how can we ever question that God is serious about us? Like put him to the test. When the God of scripture says that he loves you and is serious about forgiving you of your sins that are rightfully deserving of condemnation for all eternity, how does he prove it? We just sing about it. He proves it with blood. Not just an incision on the hand. Literally the holistic, literal shedding and pouring out of the blood of his only son, Jesus Christ, on the cross. Why? Let me give you a very, very strong picture here. There's a reason people stopped doing blood oaths. You know why? It is not sanitary. <laughs> so many people were getting sick. You know why? You mix blood, whatever disease or, or sickness that person has, you're going to get it. And so people were like, that's not sanitary. Like if you knew somebody had COVID and they're let's be blood brothers, I'd be like, no. Skip. So, God, who fully understands to, to, to spiritually shake hands with a sinful people, to covenant with people whose blood is sinful and cursed and damned, for him to willingly spiritually shake our hands means he understands I'm going to get what they have. I'm going to die the death they're supposed to die. But I'm serious about this. So he shakes it anyways and says, that's the price of redemption. And he goes further. What about the seal? Did you know not only does he pay the all in the price of dying and bleeding for redemption, but the Bible says he doubles down in Ephesians and he says, to prove how serious I am, in the same way that a husband would give an engagement ring as a guarantee of what's going to happen in the future, he says, I'm going to seal you with the Holy Spirit. As a guarantee of eternal hope and future with me. That's how serious God is. What are you serious about these days? What do you pay so much of your costs and price and time and your dues for? And it's pretty embarrassing sometimes. Like if I do it, just a litmus test on my week, I've, I've paid so much cost to like Korean dramas, <laughs> hospital playlists, lounge, lounging around, webbing, you know, social media. Remember, the bloodied cross proves to us God is serious about our salvation and our forgiveness. The bloodied cross is also a reminder that your sins are serious. They have to be dealt with. 
the blood of Jesus ultimately is a reminder that God is seriously in love with you and wants to be in relationship with you. He is serious about that. And so you have to imagine uh, if you're constantly being met in your seriousness and it's being reciprocated by apathy or ignoring or sin or flippancy. Man, when does your patience run out? And yet God shows you how serious he is because this might be the 1,000th Sunday that the Spirit's calling you back. And it is just as genuine and serious as it was on day one. That's the kind of God that we serve. And if you're not a Christian here, sitting here today, can I encourage you? The Bible gives a, a beautiful answer for any amount of guilt, shame, burden, anxiety that you carry. And I'm sure in this day and age you have a lot. But I want to say maybe something that you might need to hear. It's not in the form of a worldview or an ideology or not even a religion. It's the form of a savior who is serious about being in relationship with you if you would invite him into your life as who he is, which is he is a savior and Lord. But if you are a Christian, and I'll close here, can I encourage you starting today and regularly, if the spark of revival is the word of God. You know, the thing about wood uh, I also found this out. So I remember one time, uh, we have a, uh, a smelly candle in our, our guest bathroom. It's a good smell, by the way. <laughs> it sounds weird, smelly candle, right? It's a beautiful smell. And we'll turn it on. And I remember one day, uh, I was like, I got to put the fire out. And then my wife told me, oh, just put the lid on. And I was like, are you crazy? You shouldn't have burned the house down? She's like, oh, fire dies if it doesn't have oxygen. I was like... I knew that, right? <laughs> I actually did not know. That's amazing to me. That's why, like, you know, barbecue, like, you, you blow on it, fire goes crazy. I was like, this is amazing. Science, right? So anyways, fire needs oxygen. The oxygen for the Christian is whenever the word of God is opened, it is breathing life and giving you an opportunity to stoke the flame. Only if you seek to actually apply specifically what God is saying. And if you need help with that, four simple questions every time God's word is open, you can ask is, today, what is God revealing about himself to me? There's plenty you could take away from today. What is God calling me to believe? Take whatever burdens, anxieties you have. It's probably out of unbelief. There's some misplaced belief that you have that God has an answer for. Thirdly, as we learn, what is God calling me to repent of? Not just, oh, because I've sinned. No, 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 no. Get very particular. Get very specific. And here's the fourth one that I think is ever important that maybe we need to do a better job of as pastors and preachers. The word of God is not just to tickle your fancy. It's not just to create a random Sunday flame that dissipates. What is God calling you to actually now do in light of what he has said? What's going to catch on that piece of wood for the rest of the week? And like Israel, if you want to follow their example... Write it down. Put it in writing. One simple thing. And I promise you, if you regularly breathe that kind of oxygen and application into your walk with God, why would he not slowly but surely? Not in super crazy ways. That's just not how God seems to work. But he works very ordinarily in your life. And so with that being said, if I can close us in a time of brief prayer as we respond. Can we take a moment and pray and ask God those very things? God, in light of your word today, what are you revealing about yourself? What are you calling me to believe, convicting me to repent of, calling me to do? Or just anything that might have stuck out to you from the word. But if you're not a Christian, I, I would 
ask you to take this time of silence to reflect. What are you spending so much time and energy for these days? And again, the word is clear. There is a God and a Savior who invites you not primarily to take from you, but to give himself to you, to offer grace, forgiveness, and rest. And so let's just take a moment to reflect, to respond, to pray, and then I'll close for us.